Let's go ahead, grab your Bibles, and we'll go to John chapter 1. The fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, we're going to wrap up our Adventist series here with a message on glory. I'm going to read John 1 and then John 17, so let's stand together as we give honor to the Lord and His Word. John chapter 1, verse 14, these are the words of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John chapter 17, verse 24. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Our glorious Father and Lord, your, your word is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you have set before us through Jesus Christ, our King, and amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, I mentioned last week that Jesus became a new tabernacle, a new temple, right in the midst of Israel. The tabernacle was the focal point of Israel's worship in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem. Veiled in flesh, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, is the tabernacle par excellence. He is the tabernacle, and that is most certainly what John's gospel gets at in the opening chapter, and I would argue it's actually one of the main themes of John's gospel. Everybody points out the seven sayings, the I am sayings, and those are worthy uh, recipients of that award too. Uh, but I think Jesus being the tabernacle is absolutely uh, one of the main themes there. Our Lord's intention in bringing in a new creation order was to displace and disestablish the old creation order. Now, you do not put new wine into old wineskins. So Jesus was upending what had gone before, bringing certain things with him, but the new creation comes, the old creation must be transformed, it must change, it must be disestablished. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was the inauguration of that disruption. The birth of Jesus was the inauguration of this great disruption of the old way with now the new way. And there is continuity there, but there's also discontinuity as well. His, his teaching and his ministry was its execution. So he's come to disrupt it. The, the king is born, Herod's paranoid, something's changing, and then Jesus grows in wisdom and stature. He becomes the new Adam. Adam was supposed to grow in wisdom and stature. And then he could eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Jesus grows in wisdom and he knows God's word, being God's word, but also as in his human nature, grows and matures. And then he starts teaching and enacting the kingdom, showing how this disruption is going to take place. Now, his death, resurrection and ascension was the implementation of that disruption. So 
Him being born was the inauguration, his teaching and ministry was its execution, and then his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, people forget that part of the gospel, that is the implementation of the disruption. Now, in fact, I would argue that if we ignore the content of Jesus' parables, if we ignore the content of the actions that he performed that if we ignore those things, we will miss what he's doing, or worse yet, we'll assume he's doing something wrong or completely meaningless. Jesus came as a new Adam, a new Noah, a new Abraham, a new Israel, a new Moses, a new David, and a new temple. He is all of those things. All of that points to him. All of redemptive history points to and arrives in Jesus of Nazareth, which is all to say that the glory that we intend to discover this morning is the consummation of all the wonderful works of God. Why did God create? For Christ. Why did God call Abraham? For Christ. All of it, the consummation of all the wonderful works of God in history lands on Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Today is Christmas Eve. This morning we have the opportunity to peek inside the manger to gaze upon this newborn king and do it with much anticipation. And, and that's not to say that Jesus is a baby today, so let's not make sure, you know, uh, we don't want to treat Jesus as though in his current state of enthronement that he is still a baby. But as we carve out time to remember the importance of the Incarnation, we do it with anticipation. So today we find ourselves uh, flummoxed and uh, completely caught off guard at this prospect of God becoming man. What a thought. What a thought. Today we eagerly listen to the Father's voice in the Word who became flesh. What was just stated, I want to make sure we emphasize, I think it's extremely important. Jesus is the Word, or He is the speech of the Father. We think of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son, He is the Word. He is the speech of the Father. We might say He's the mouthpiece of the Father. Jesus discloses the Father's will, the Father's heart, the Father's thoughts. This speech unveils the glory of the triune God. In the Son, we finally see God. In the Son, we hear and we listen to God. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. In the Son, we behold the glory of God's holy nature. Consequently, the Incarnation holds a certain supremacy in Christian doctrine and experience. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book Miracles, he writes this, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Uh, great and profound quote from Lewis. In other words, all of human history before Bethlehem's great reception of the king, all of it, everything that went before that was preparation for this child. The great miracle of God becoming man is the great exhibition of God's sovereign power. How powerful is God? He became man. Look to the manger. How powerful is God? How sovereign is God? Look to the manger. And all of God's actions through this child who became a man 
who would grow to rule the world, all of that is the result of this glorious moment. The Word became flesh. This is the linchpin of Christian doctrine. Lewis elaborates by saying that the miraculous incarnation, quote, relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends to complete conquest and occupation. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. God becoming man was the invasion. God becoming man gives context to every other miracle that happened before. The parting of the Red Sea, right? The, the, the miraculous events surrounding uh, the midwives when Pharaoh ordered the children to be put to death. All of these miraculous moments point to, to Christ becoming man, Jesus being fully God and fully man. Everything that comes before Bethlehem, everything that comes after, is all related to this stubborn fact that the Son of God took on human flesh. So Christmas, I like to say, it's conquest. Christmas is conquest. It's an invasion plan. It is a strategic military conquest. And it's a glorious conquest. Christmas is God's self-revelation, and it is a glorious self-revelation. Christmas is God's generosity, and it is a glorious generosity. Christmas is God's self-giving, and it is a glorious self-giving. So let's look at our passages here. John chapter 1, verse 14. We've been hanging out here in this text for three weeks now. The Word became flesh. He dwelt, right? He dwelt among us. He the, John says, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Keep in mind the treasure trove that is John chapter 1. The Logos is eternal, right? In the beginning was God. He's eternal. He is fully and truly divine. The Word was God. Not what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you when they knock at your door. The Word was a God. Okay, that's not in the original Greek text. That's a later insertion to fit their doctrinal heretical teaching. He is truly divine. Uh, Jesus, the Word of God, is the Word of all creation. All things come into being through Him. That's in verse 3. He is self-existent. In Him was life. That's why Jesus can say what He says about being the vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you want life, it's in me. Life comes from Him. He is life. He is self-existent. He is the essential nature of God. John, 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So this is the Word, and with this in mind, keep, consider verse 14. I mentioned this last week, but beholding the glory, beholding the glory of Christ Jesus is an echo of the glory cloud that rested on the tabernacle in the wilderness. So if you're a first century Jew and you're reading John's account, you're immediately going there. Exodus 40, verse 34 says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. The glory of Yahweh that left the temple under the watchful eye of Ezekiel has now returned and filled Jesus the new tabernacle, the new temple. 
So in the, in the incarnation, we confess that Jesus became our neighbor. The uncapturable God sat on his mother's lap. I mentioned this last week, Colossians 1.19. For in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Jesus is the glory of God. Now in the Hebrew language, the word glory, one of, it's a great word, kavod, it means weight. Glory means weight. Glory refers to something that is substantial, something or someone of honor and renown. Um, when we uh, ascribing glory to God is ascribing severity, weightiness, uh, significance, and gravity to God. Um, th this idea that everything orbits around the glory of God. That's, that's weightiness, that's significance, supremacy. Um, God is infinitely glorious, which is shorthand for describing his infinite power, his infinite might, his infinite splendor. In the New Testament, we have a word for that. It's called doxa in the Greek language, and it's used here in, verse, or in John 1. Now, there's a verb form, doxazo. It means to glorify. So when we glorify something, we are, it's this act of giving and receiving honor. So when we say, you're soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, when we say you should give God glory, we're saying you should hold him up as supreme. You should give him honor in your life. Now, when men gathered around the tabernacle and later the temple, they would offer sacrifices to God, and this act of worship was a glorifying of God. So when we give of ourselves and we give of all of ourselves, we are giving God glory. Therefore, we can say that worship is the prostration of the heart and the body in reverence of God's supreme magnificence. Worship is just you beholding God's glory, ascribing the value that's due his name. John says that he and those who saw Jesus, they beheld his glory. That word beheld just means to gaze um, admiringly at the brilliance, the splendid brilliance of Jesus. They, and maybe in modern words you could say, and we gawked at his glory. <laughs> and we were awestruck as we looked upon his brilliance. That's what he's saying here. Um, the majesty of God, says Calvin, was not annihilated, though it was surrounded by flesh. It was indeed concealed under the low condition of the flesh, but so as to cause its splendor to be seen. So Jesus is the Son by nature, and those who saw him understood him to be full of something. There was more than met the eye. They didn't see his glory fully, otherwise they would just evaporate. That he, he was veiled in flesh, says the hymn. He was veiled in flesh, and there was glory to behold. John says he was full of grace and truth. How do they know that? Boy, he acted like it. Imagine hearing his teachings and seeing his grace and his healing touch going to the infirm. Boy, that's grace and that's truth. This man spoke with authority. The scribes even acknowledged that. He was full of grace and truth. 
This phrase, full of grace and truth, by the way, is an ancient way of describing God as full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Yahweh, in other words, came up close and personal. He was glory wrapped in flesh. Flip to John 17. I'm going to do just a drive-by of this verse because the theme of glory shows up over 20 times in John's gospel. John is obsessed with this concept of doxa, the glory of, of, of God. And in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father in what we usually consider, we, we usually call it the high priestly prayer. And uh, in verse 22, he prays for his people. And he prays that they would be outfitted for unity with the glue of God's glory. Uh, remember 2 Corinthians 3.18. It helps us. Paul says, But we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So Jesus here asks for the glory of God, which is intimately shared between the three persons of the Godhead, he asks that it would spill over into God's chosen ones. Now, when we share in the image of God as image bearers, that is to fundamentally possess a glory, a significance, a weighty honor. When you're, when you're, that's why Christians are the only ones that can be consistent with their anthropology. Their view of man is rooted in this principle that all men, women, and children have a glory. All right, that you are made in the image of God. Now, when sin entered into the world, we know that the glory collapsed, not totally, but significantly or fundamentally. The glory was broken or fractured or tainted. Use, pick your metaphor. But part of Jesus' great priestly work is to restore that glory-bearing image. Glory to glory, Paul says. Glory now, the glory of Christ in us, unto a future resurrection glory. So when sinners come to Christ by faith, the glory of God is engraved upon them, sealed like wax on an envelope, by the Holy Spirit. Any sort of unity in the church is, is only going to be as good as that glory-bearing enterprise. If you forget that your brother and sister who you sit next to right now has glory, because of Christ, if you forget that, you will easily try. You will cause division. You will hurt them with your words. You will act out, shall we say. Now in verse 24, to emphasize this again, we see that Christ prays for his people that they would behold his actual glory, the true divine nature of the Son of God before the foundation of the world. Now to be sure, it is not possible for us to behold the full glory of Christ in all of its fullness, not until the resurrection state. We are not yet outfitted for such things. It's too high. It's too glorious for us. We're not ready. And yet Christ prays here for us to behold that glory by faith. Now, I do believe that Jesus here is speaking about the eternal state, heaven. Heaven, shorthand for new heavens and new earth, the final glorified resurrection state. I think that's what he's getting at here. And his desire is for his people to experience the brilliance and joy and felicity of heaven to, to be seen. We want each of us to be seen in heaven's light, 
We want, Jesus wants us to be immersed in the radiance of Christ's perfection. John Owen says it well. No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter, who doth not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. Grace is a necessary preparation for glory and faith for sight. Jesus prays that we would catch a glimpse of the radiant glory of the heavenly throne room, and we know that someday we will when we see him face to face, but for now, beholding the glory looks like faith. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that's Jesus, Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, note that, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, the book of Hebrews goes through great pains to explain the extensive ramifications of Christ's death. I believe it was written by Paul. I could make that argument internally. Uh, Paul, this verse resembles Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He, he says, for from him are all things here in Hebrews 2.10. Through whom are all things. That's Pauline language. There are other places I could point to, but we have here this reminder that Jesus is the author. He's the trailblazer. He's the captain. He's the forerunner. Um, he has perfected, that is, he has matured or completed our salvation. And part of this is bringing his sons to glory. Uh, wonderful quote here by Calvin. He says it well. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Inglorious sinners need to be brought to glory. They will not come on their own terms. They need to be brought to the glory of God. Uh, I just think of oftentimes their interaction with college students. and It's like they don't believe us when they tell them that they are glorious. <laughs> You're made in the image of God. No, I'm not. You have glory. No, I don't. Everything's meaningless. I'm a nihilist, right? And, and it's like we're trying to help them to behold glory. We want, that's what faith is, to, to take in, to behold. And you just, they have to be brought there. They're never going to come on their own, which is why faith comes by hearing. And so Paul says something similar in Romans. And this is the golden chain of salvation. Verse Romans 8, 29, Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I don't want to get overly complicated here, but the language of the Bible does matter. In Romans 8, Paul explains what God has done, past tense, in our salvation. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. The word glorified there is a verb, and in Greek, 
it's the aorist tense. And what that means is that the writer sees the action in a, simp in a simple moment, uh, like a snapshot, a, a camera lens here, taking a photo of something that has already happened. So we're invited to look at this photo here. God has already glorified you. Within the Greek language, you have an indicative as well, which is like a command, but it suggests something from the past when you use this language together. And I'm pointing this out because we often think of glorification as being a future thing, which it is. But in reality, it's an already accomplished fact for us. You have been glorified. We've already been there. Jesus has already brought us as sons and daughters to glory. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a future glorification with the resurrection of the dead. But there is, and some theologians call it this, it's an initial glorification. There's an initial glorification here in Romans, and it's the same thing in Hebrews as well. There's a down payment now. There's a full reward later. And this doesn't mean that we don't live under the cross anymore. Look, trials come, do they not? Death of a loved one, sickness, health struggles, trials come. Um, enemies will always attempt to advance, especially when we don't think that we're the ones that should be advancing. Difficulties will always arise. Economies will always fluctuate. Um, prognosticators at, at the, at the uh, Federal Reserve will always control you. <laughs> there are always more tax men coming to ask for more money. There are difficulties. But in Christ, we are sanctified. That is, we are set apart in the glory of Christ. And our union with Jesus is a union with glory. When Jesus... When the Spirit changed your heart and you believed on Christ by faith, you were brought into Christ. And when you were brought into Christ, you were brought into glory. He brought you there. And there is glory and honor in being set apart from the world. That's what it means to be brought to glory. Jesus had to bring us to glory. We had image-bearing glory, but we didn't have the glory of Christ, which is the glory of glories. So we had to be brought there. And so this participle here in Hebrews speaks of, of completion. It's the same thing in Romans 8. Hebrews 2.10 tells us that Christ's work brought us to glory and it is completed. In Christ, we are active partakers of the glory of God. So how shall we then live? King David gives us a glimpse into what it means to yearn for, that is, to behold the glory of God. Listen to what he says here in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from Yahweh that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. What a verse. Do you yearn like that? The context helps us understand why David yearned in this way. Evildoers had attempted to surround him. David knows full well what that was like. Uh, they challenged his trust in God, mocking him. You know, the wicked tell, where is your God? <laughs> well, let's, this is a war. Let's talk. But David is unflappable. He cannot be moved. Though he's surrounded, his heart will not fear, he says. 
Though they war against him, he trusts in God. That's in the previous verse there. Regardless of circumstances, David longs to dwell in the house of Yahweh because Yahweh is there and Yahweh invites his people to come to him. David longs to behold the beauty of Yahweh. And why wouldn't he? Is there anything in this world that can capture our gaze more than the presence of God? David desires to gaze intently on the beauty of Yahweh, to inquire in his temple. That is, David is essentially saying, I long to see God and to speak with him. I want to see him. I want to speak with him. Now, this same paradigm shows up in John's gospel. Jesus prays that we would see his glory. And John admits from the very start that they beheld his glory, that glory that comes from God, the glory of of pure grace and unadulterated truth. So what are we celebrating at Christmas? Well, the glory of Christmas, the glory of Christmas is the self-giving God who gave the supreme gift of his son. It's a great thing when we're opening gifts to remind our children this is, this is a glimpse of how we discover the gift of Christ. Right? We're, it's, the, the gift is veiled in a package, and it's a beautiful package. And it's a symbol for us. We give of ourselves, right? We give to someone out of the abundance of our heart, and it's a joyful experience. Paul, that's why Paul says it's, it's better to give than to receive. There's real glory in giving, because you're giving of yourself to someone. And that's exactly what Christmas is. It's the self-giving God. That's the glory. The self-giving God gave us the supreme gift of His Son. And you see, all men behold some sort of glory. Right? All men behold some sort of glory. All men find some sort of significance in someone or something. And I'll tell you, the easiest person to behold is the self. Because we look at ourselves in the mirror. We generally don't look at other people. We look in the mirror, what do we see? Ourselves. All right? The easiest person to behold is the self, for we are most prone in our sinful state to gaze upon ourselves with admiration and praise. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a healthy view of your identity of Christ, and God does love you, and you have glory, and you should be content with that. But there's a line, isn't there, where it's, okay, I really am someone special. I'm the one that made myself special. And there's this, uh, the dominoes fall because of our sinful state. But that's exactly what humanism is at its core. Humanism sees, you remember the quote, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. The angels declaring that. Humanists will look at that and say, that's, that's it. That's the gospel promise as though being good towards one another is the ultimate ethical priority. You see how you can bend a simple truth? Yeah, peace on earth and goodwill to our men. That's the gospel. What's the point of life? Well, just be nice. I realize I evolved from apes, and I have in my intelligence supremely acknowledged the fact that I probably should love other people. That's the humanist way. Autonomous men who hate Christ will see the self as the main point of all of life. If you will not look upon the the glory of Christ, you will look upon your own glory, and you will think that you made it. You made it. They 
baselessly want the glory shown at Christmas, but they don't want Christ, the originator of this glory. They want to be able to see. They want to be able to see, but they deny the sunlight exists. And so they glorify creation in order to behold something more manageable on their terms. But what does it mean to behold? Well, to behold is to look and perceive with the eyes of faith. I'll say it again. To behold something or someone is to look and perceive with the eyes of faith. And all men do this. But what exactly are we looking at? Glory is meant to be something we, that, that men behold, but it needs to be proper glory. It needs to be suitable glory. Moreover, men must behold the glory of Christ because that is where true glory comes from. If you want the glory of self, that is you wanting to see the world, but denying that there are sun rays that help light it up so that you can see. Uh, John Owen tells us that if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which gives us rest, peace, and satisfaction, we must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. Owen would go on to explain that the more we behold Christ, the more we look to him with the eyes of faith, and the less time and attention we have to give to lesser glories of the world. Owen says this again, one view of Christ's glory by faith will scatter all the fears, answer all the objections, and disperse all the depressions of poor, tempted, doubting souls. To all believers, it is an anchor which they may cast within the veil to hold them firm and steadfast in all trials, storms, and temptations, both in life and in death. So we have been brought to glory why would we trust in man? We have been brought to glory. Why would we gaze upon ourselves with admiration and praise? Look to Christ. Behold Christ when you're stressed and anxious. Behold Christ when you're feeling alone. Behold Christ when you're not sure that you can press on anymore. Behold Christ. Look to Christ. Be enamored by Christ. Reorient your thinking and emotions around the glory, beauty, supremacy, and sovereignty of Christ Jesus. Why do you think people today are so bored? They, I, I learned a new term. It's called doom scrolling. When you're just on your phone, scrolling one video after the other. Doom scrolling. You're locked in and the reels just have you. You are beholding. Now, I'm not saying you should never do that, because I love a good cat video as much as the next person. But, yes, I admitted that. But the thing is, <laughs> there's an amen, all right. <laughs> but why do you think people are bored? Because they're looking at dim glories. They're, your eyes are darkened. You can't see. You're bored to tears. I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, then you have forgotten the beauty of something so basic as sunlight. Why do you think the psalmist repeatedly praises God for the works of his creation? And we don't even tend to think about it. It's easy to walk through and we look outside right now and there's not a lot of green, not a lot of life. But we thank God because we know in the springtime is resurrection glory. 
Behold that glory. All things, listen, all things serve the glory of God. But whether we're talking about the damnation of sinners or the salvation of sinners, all things glorify God. All things terminate on the glory of God. What is sin? A falling short of what? The glory of God. What must we do to be saved? We glorify God by grace through faith. Beholding Christ is trusting Christ. It means that we treasure our union with him more than anything else in the world. And in fact, I would argue this is the basis for being able to properly love anything or anyone else God has given to us. You can't faithfully love your wife or your husband or your children unless you understand the glory of Christ. And I think Christmas is absolutely the foundation of everything. Christmas is the foundation of everything for the simple fact that we needed a perfect atonement and we cannot have a perfect atonement if Jesus does not actually die and Jesus cannot actually and truly die if he does not have a human body. And Jesus cannot have a human body if he was not born of the virgin. The coming of the Son of God in the flesh was and is a glory to behold. It's not simply a fact to rehearse. The glory of this newborn king came to shine the brilliance of God's holiness on a cold and dark world. And that's what makes Christmas time so special. It reminds us of both the height and the depth and the breadth of God's remarkable love. From heaven he came and sought his bride. And I'll leave you with this. Do you have Christ? Then you have glory. You are the glory. Do you honor Christ? Then you are using that glory correctly. Do you behold Christ? Then see to it that you look to Christ ten times more than you look at yourself. Be more impressed with Jesus than you are with yourself, than you are with anyone else. See, Christ taking on humanity after humanity had traded in its image-bearing responsibilities, Christ taking on flesh was the great reclamation and work of the kingdom of God. When, think of it this way. When God broke through and broke in our world, I say our world, it's his world, but you know what I mean. When he brought, broke into our world that starry night when Christ was born, that was the moment when creation began to lose its space outside of God. And it becomes, by God's grace, a place where God comes to dwell. No more autonomy is permitted. Why? Jesus became a man and dwelt among us. And when God comes to dwell, friends, the radiant glory of his grace floods the world with grace and truth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold this glory indeed. Let's pray. Father, it is by your Spirit's power that we are enabled to possess this glorification. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, Jesus, you brought us to this glory. You have taken us out of the valley of dry bones. You have taken us out of the realm of death and iniquity and darkness. And you have brought us into the fire of your radiant glory. So we honor you and we thank you for it. 
Help us as this word is preached to dwell upon these glories. And may we be reminded of the truth that Christmas is the invasion plan. All authority belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has earned it. So may we be obedient in following that path of wisdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.